Well, hello. Good afternoon to you all. Let's try that again. Good afternoon. I'm thrilled and thankful to be able to gather together today. And uh, I do trust that between the many songs and scripture passages and prayers uh, that our souls have been blessed and we're ready to hear from God's word today. If you could please turn in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. Psalm chapter 7, you'll find it close to the halfway point in your Bibles. As you turn there through the many pages or by the scrolling on your devices, uh, as I was reading through Psalm 7, it made me think uh, ever so slightly about the, my first ever job out of college, my first real job, so to speak, but not so much in terms of the contents of the psalm, uh, but more so the structure of it. So initially, I was, um, I was an operations manager at a, in a company with insane demands and a brutal work culture, uh, and my main responsibility day in and day out was to manage about a thousand different variables throughout the course of the day and then type up a super detailed report at the end of each day. And it was a lot of the same information, uh, but each report contained number after number, page after page of information on how things turned out that day. So what actually happened? Uh, and then I had to send it out to thousands of people. And as you can expect, I had to get it right. So think of like when you send an important email out to somebody or to a bunch of people for work or school. Uh, you read over it like over and over and over and over again to make sure there's no typos or anything. Think of like that times 10. This is the idea I want to bring with us into as we look at the structure of the psalm or even as we work through it thematically. Um, the idea of reading the text over and over and over again. So turning it, turning it over multiple times through multiple lenses to see what's there. Does that make sense? So to pay close attention to particular themes and to realize how the truth of this psalm kind of has like multiple fulfillments or at the very least a lot of applications from different angles. So anytime you read your Bibles, friends, I encourage you, hang on to every word. Don't just sit down and randomly open it and see how it immediately impacts you. But also, do take care to look at how it impacted the original audience, right? How Christians have read it throughout history. But above all, when you read your Bibles, look for Christ. And this is exactly what we're going to do together today. So if you open up again, look at Psalm 7. I'm going to read it through. It says, A Shigayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. And according to the integrity that is in me, 
Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will, to the, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Now, as I read the psalm over and over, I must con- confess, I was trying to figure out how to best structure it, right, and outline each section and provide you with points, and I kept running into the same challenge, which was rather than seeing it as like topical breaks, like an outline, so to speak, what I kept seeing instead was simply this. It was the two, same two themes running throughout the passage, and it was essentially the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be saved. Another way of saying it would be God will judge the wicked and God will save the righteous. So the wicked will be judged, the righteous will be saved. And here's what we're going to do today. Instead of having like three linear points, we're going to instead go to look at Psalm 7 through three different acts, so to speak. Three different acts, almost like a musical or a Broadway show. Each act will take a look back through the psalm, the first one longer, the second one a little shorter, and then the third one very quickly. Uh, And they'll serve as our points for today. Does that make sense? So three acts. Acts one, act number one, King David, who's the author of this psalm. Act number two, Jesus Christ, who is this psalm's ultimate fulfillment himself. And then finally, act number three, us in our lives in the here and now. So I'll repeat, David, Christ, and us. And for the sake of time, we won't be able to necessarily stop at each and every single word, but we will track through it through the eyes of David, through the eyes of Christ, and then finally through our own eyes as well. And I pray that as we take a closer look at this psalm, you'll see the infinite value and gift of the scriptures in allowing us to know God in Christ more fully. So act number one, King David. The wicked will be judged, the righteous will be saved, and the life of King David, the author of this psalm. So like I said, this act will be admittedly the longest since it's in the immediate context of what we see going on. And so what we'll do is we'll walk through the contents of this psalm together as we examine the plight that David finds himself in. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, David was a man who lived about 3,000 years ago. When we're initially introduced to him in the Bible, he's this insignificant shepherd boy who is shockingly anointed by God to be king of Israel as successor to Saul, who was the, the first ever king of Israel. And as a long story short, what we see unfold throughout the New Testament is a constant divide in attitude and behavior between Saul the Benjaminite, so that's from the, the tribe of Benjamin, you see it in the heading there, and David, who was the tribe of Judah. So where Saul proves arrogant, David proves humble. And where Saul disobeys God, David is found obeying. 
And where Saul is constantly found fearing man, David fears God, and so on and so on and on and on it goes. God delivers David and God judges Saul. It's the perfect picture of the two themes we're talking about today, where the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be saved. So if you look at the heading of Psalm 7 with me, right there it says, A Shigayan of David. So a Shigayan is the singular of the word Shigianoth, which Pastor James pointed out several months ago when he preached in Habakkuk chapter 3, that these are the only, uh, uh, the only times throughout all of Scripture that these words are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, so we've been a church plant for less than a year, and we've already covered all the Shigianoths in the Bible. So props to, props to us. So there's no translation for this word in English, but most scholars believe it's a type of musical arrangement that corresponds with deep distress or, or erratic wandering, almost like, uh, like angsty uh, blues, so to speak. And notice the next word of the heading what it says, it says, he sang it to the Lord considering the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So we don't know exactly who Cush is. Many people speculate that this is just another name for Saul himself, uh, who definitely certainly set himself against the rival David. Others have said it's other individuals we see throughout, this, uh, throughout Scripture who are associated with the tribe of Benjamin. But regardless of whether it's Saul himself or a Saul loyalist, uh, we can be sure of the nature of this opponent and the words that he is saying, and that is that they're not good. Uh, they're not celebratory. They're slanderous. They're conniving. They're damning. And according to David, they're utterly false. So what's happening is that David, who is on the run from Saul, who's trying to take his life at this point, Saul trying to take David's life, is being wrongly accused of some type of pretty severe and heinous crime or series of crimes. And yet the situation is not really unique to David in that David lived a life full of turbulence and opposition. Think of like a five-hour flight. Who here has been to the West Coast from the East Coast? Think of flying to the West Coast on a four or five-hour flight. And you know how it goes. Initially, it's a little bumpy, then you, you hit X number of feet and it, it smooths out and you hit a few bumps along the way, but generally you're good. Uh, that's like the good and easy life, so to speak. David's life, on the other hand, uh, especially early on, is like when you get on that plane and you're just shaking the whole five hours, right? That's, that's brutal. And that's where you put the seatbelt on really tight. And that's where David writes in verse one, oh Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. So it's truly amazing how this psalm starts here in verse 1. What we see here is the first instance in the psalms where God is addressed as both Yahweh, which is his intimate, relational, covenantal name, and my God side by side. One commentator notes here that this denotes at once supreme reverence and the most endearing confidence conveying a recognition of God's infinite perfections and of his covenanted and gracious relations. So for example, the, the old hymn, How Great Thou Art, anyone know how it starts? O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder. Or perhaps a newer song, O Praise the Name, which we sing here often, though we're not singing it today. How does the chorus end? 
For endless days we will sing your praise, O Lord, O Lord, our God. We're not just saying two words for God. We're not just saying the same thing. We're essentially saying, O God, my God, who is faithful to your promises, who saves the righteous and judges the wicked, we trust you and we adore you. Or as David puts it here, in you do I take refuge. One Oklahoma pastor writes that taking refuge in God means trusting that he can and that he will protect you. He is strong enough to shield you and he is faithful to guard you. God does not merely protect as an activity in and of itself. He himself is protection. And David is calling on God to protect him here, to save him. Why? Look at verse 2. He uses the image of encountering a lion on his own. Can you imagine that? Coming into a dead-end street with a lion there, ready to tear you apart. Probably an image he's seen before in his shepherding days. And the nature of the accusation seems so severe that in verses 3 through 5, he finds himself essentially saying, God, if this were the case, if I actually did commit these acts, then by all means, guilty. Judge me. You see the word if there three times. If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, well then pursue my soul, take it over and trample me to the dust like a flower in the middle of a stampede. This is the sign of David's utter confidence in his innocence when it comes to this accusation from Cush. For example, when you find yourself wrongly accused, right, at work or at home with brothers and sisters, you name it, or lied about. How often are you unable to wait to defend yourself? Right? You want to clear your name, right? And if you're innocent, what do you do? You say things like, listen, if I did that, absolutely, but let the punishment be so. Or, hey, yes, search my stuff. By all means, do whatever you need to do. Right? It's a marker of innocence. There's these... Um, there's these games out there uh, that, that center on debate, deception, and strategy. Uh, some of you might have played them before. One of them calls Mafia, another one's called The Resistance, another one's called Avalon, and so forth. Uh, but basically, people uh, are split into two teams, good versus evil, but nobody really knows who is who for the most part. And you have to discuss and debate to try to figure it out. Uh, every game, the, the evil team attempts to deceive the good team into thinking that they are actually on the good team side so that they can infiltrate them and gain their trust and then win the game. Uh, basically, you have an, in, in other words, you have an entire room of people trying to convince each other that they're innocent and on the good team. Now, I generally have a really bad history with these types of games because I tend to get really uh, unnecessarily and probably unhealthily into them. Um, so, for example, in college one time, I tried to publicly shame my own wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, uh, for being on an evil team and uh, trying to take our team over. It was like a full room of like 15, 20 people. Uh, also, I'm notorious for making these really grand, dramatic speeches about why I'm innocent, regardless of whether I'm innocent or not. Even a few weeks ago in our community group, uh, we got together and played one of these games. And Courtney, one of our members, who's not here today, so I can call her out, uh, as adamant as ever, kept repeating herself over and over again that she was, in fact, good. And I myself was on the good team, but I couldn't trust her. 
Because all I heard was, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. You can trust me, which is super sketchy. And I wanted something like this from David before I could actually believe her. Maybe she did give me that, maybe she didn't. She probably didn't, I just didn't listen. Uh, but nonetheless, this is the idea of what I'm talking about. Not, David's not just saying, I'm good. Like, I, I didn't do anything here. He is saying, he, he, he's insisting on his innocence, and he would bet his life and destiny upon it, which is why he turns in verse 6 to saying, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. I should have stood up and screamed this against Courtney. Lord, judgment, right? But in all seriousness, David is pleading with the Lord here to step in and plead his, uh, plead his cause because at this point, there's nothing David can really do. And we all, in one circumstance or another, have sought to defend ourselves from bad press or gossip or untruths or honestly, even just protect ourselves against really hard circumstances. And we fight and we fight and we defend and we defend. And at the end of the day, we eventually just have to give it up to God, right? We eventually have to give ourselves up to God. And this is what David is doing here in Psalm 7. He's saying, oh Lord, I know you're not asleep, but it really seems like you are right now. Please step in. Please intervene. Please put an end to the wicked and the evil of this world and save the righteous, avenge the innocent. I mean, he pleads his case again in verse 7, like a, like a wrongly accused man who eagerly awaits his court date to clear his name. He essentially says, bring everyone in here as witnesses. But if you look at the difference between verse 6 and verse 8, verse 6 is essentially saying, judge now, God, please. Whereas verse 8 is basically saying that regardless, God will judge rightly, whether now whether later his judgment is sure and it is trustworthy. And regardless of when it happens, it will happen. Where we can truly say, in God we trust, not as a country slogan, but as an anthem for our lives. And friends, verses 8 through 11 are essentially the power of having a clear conscience in light of impending judgment. He says from the second half of verse 8, Judge me, O Lord. According to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous. You who test the hearts or the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and, God who, and a God who feels indignation every day. Friends, there's nothing better or more powerful than a clear conscience. And we see it on full display here in these verses. David is so convinced of his innocence in this particular instance, but it's, it's also very important to note what this does not mean, which is that David is not insisting that he's perfect or that his quote-unquote righteousness is a state of being or totally comprehensive. We know this from countless other psalms. Uh, even ones really close to this one, Psalm 7, as well as plenty of other biblical texts, David was by no means a perfect man, and he knows he wasn't. And he knows, like all of us, that if he were to be judged finally on the basis of his own righteousness, that he would look just like the man in verses 12 through 16, where it appears David has final judgment in view. So look at verse 12 there. There we read, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, 
He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. In other words, friends, there is a God. He is good. He created all things good, and his plan for all time is that everything would be fully restored to that eternal state of goodness, period. Therefore, he's absolutely devoted to the total eradication and the destruction of all things evil. Anything that is evil, anything that has ever been evil, anything that has ever done evil. What good news, right? But oh no, friends, that is actually very bad news for us. For all of us, because we know our hearts. We know our deeds. We know our thoughts. We know what we did this week. We know how we used that person or how we lied or cheated or stole and how we thought we were or thought we are going to still get away with it. We know how, how we looked at that person or at those people we weren't supposed to. Or how we treated our loved ones or our roommates or how we treated that person on the road or how we idolized ourselves above others. Or worse and damnable of all, how we've idolized ourselves over God. Friends, you know, I know that I could keep going on and on and on about the state of the human condition and how the number of sins in our lives would quickly balloon up faster than any national debt or of any kind of increasing COVID cases, or the number of social media likes or shares that you or me or any celebrity could ever get, right now, that tally is ever increasing on your life. How are you ever going to pay that? Because even if you had all the money in the world, and in this case, spiritual money, or in other words, good deeds, The second you sit down with a pen to write that check, that number is only going to skyrocket further. And you can't swipe a righteousness credit card fast enough to be able to ever even come close to keep up. The truth is that a day is coming imminently where the God of ages, the God of everything, will swing that sword we see in verse 12 that could cut this world in two. He'll shoot that arrow, figuratively speaking, where this world will be like a grape on a wall. And you who are wicked, who conceive evil, who give birth to lies, will be destroyed. And you know what? You who are wicked, that's all of us. That's you. That is me. That is the holiest person you can think of on planet Earth right now we will be held accountable for what we've done. We will pay for our transgressions unless there is another way. I mean, if that includes all of us and if that includes even David, as we've discussed, how can David then talk of salvation? How can he even dare to speak of deliverance? 
Who is he to say, save and deliver me? Look with me at verse 17. He says, he ends this psalm. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. So how can this be so? How can this psalm land here at the end if we're all guilty? I mean, David might advocate his innocence in this situation with Cush. And we might advocate our innocence in other situations in our daily lives. But at the end of the day, like I said, we know our hearts. And if the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be saved, how is it possible that anybody can be saved? And this brings us into act number two, Jesus Christ. So we're going to go back through briefly like looking over the report again, like I talked about at the outset, only we're jumping ahead about a thousand years to the life of Christ our Lord. More specifically, we're jumping ahead to what Bible scholars call the passion narrative. And this essentially refers to the biblical accounts of the arrest, the trial, the suffering, and the death of Jesus. So rather than reading these words as coming from David, right, in his situation with Saul and, and, and Cush, let's read them as coming from Christ, the son of David. The, the prophetic fulfillment of this psalm and so many other psalms, the one in which everything in the Bible ultimately points to. So picture now the, the Lord Jesus Christ up on the cross, beaten, abused, mocked, and scolded. Verse one of this psalm, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Verses 8 through 11. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Friends, this sounds a lot like Jesus in the Gospels, right? Not even just the passion narrative, but throughout. Think of the garden listening to God the Father, taking him at his word, trusting him to judge the wicked and save the righteous, no matter what the situation might look like at the present time. One of my favorite quotes ever, and pay close attention to these words, and I, 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 my prayer is that you'll truly treasure them, is from J.L. Reynolds. It says, when Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate, the remarkable words, I am a king. He pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns and a reed and a purple robe and nailing him to a cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power and that cross the throne of dominion which shall never end. Church, Christ our Lord, seeming to be the wicked on the cross, seeming to be the fool, seeming to be the powerless and the judged, was exactly where he wanted to be. 
as Tamar read earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, you'll notice also in, the, in Psalm 7, I skipped the portions where the author writes about the potential for being guilty. And you guess why I did that? And it's because Jesus was not guilty. There was no possibility of Jesus being guilty. Praise the Lord. He committed absolutely zero wrongs. And he lived a life in perfect obedience to the Father to the point where he could truly cry out in verse 8, judge me, Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity in me. Not just for one instance, but for all time. The highest degree of righteousness ever possible to, to attain the righteousness of God himself. And so then what did, exactly did Jesus do? Well, he lived the perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father that no one has done and no one possibly could ever do. And then he was accused wrongly and tried corruptly and mocked and beaten and crucified to their eternal judgment and his eternal glory. Amen. But friends, this wasn't just a false trial or a gross miscarriage of justice, and neither was Jesus going along with this against his will. Like I said, no, Jesus was bearing the eternal weight of divine wrath against all sin for all time, including yours, including mine, that the righteousness he achieved might be able to be credited to us, that we who are poor might be able to be made rich through his voluntary poverty. That as verse 12 of this psalm says, for all who repent of their sins, meaning you hate sin, you fight sin, and you put your faith in Jesus' substitutionary atonement on the cross to pay for that sin, your righteousness or lack thereof becomes his and his righteousness becomes yours by faith. So friends, if you are carrying a burden today, if you have been running and you are exhausted, and you are exhausted of hiding it, and you are exhausted and just running out of speed, and you are here on your last two legs, come to the Lord Jesus. And just as his righteousness will be linked to you by faith, so likewise his eternal existence will be linked to you. He will remove that burden and set it as far away from the east as from the west. It's like throwing a giant boulder into the ocean. You will never see it again. You may continue to struggle and sin in this life, but for all glory and all eternity, which is coming so imminently soon, that sin will be lifted from you when you die and rise again to the life above. His righteousness becomes yours. His eternal life becomes yours. And his tender protection and love and care is reserved for you. It's set on you. That you might be able to truly join David in verse 17 and say, I will give thanks to the Lord due to his righteousness, Christ's righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the most high. Amen. Praise God. You know what else this psalm sounds like other than Christ in the Gospels? If you keep your thumb in Psalm 7, flip briefly over with me to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, it's basically at the end of the Bible. We're just going to be looking at a few mirror texts there to today's passage. 
So you'll find it very close to the end of your Bibles, a little before Revelation and a little after Hebrews if you turn there during the scripture reading. And again, we'll read a few things here, uh, but look specifically with me at chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 to 24, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now get this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And that brings us to act number three. Us. Friends, what will you do today? How are you going to live your life? Are you going to die to sin and live to righteousness? Or are you going to live to sin? and die to righteousness? Will you continue white-knuckling your way through life trying to prove yourself? Or stop at nothing to prove your worth and your righteousness to everybody else? Will you grow bitter and distrustful of God for seeming not to step in when you want him to rather than when he knows what's best for you? For those of you here today who aren't Christians, uh, or maybe you might say you are, but deep down you know you're not, thank you so much for being here. Um, I do hope this service is a blessing to you. I do wonder, how will you respond? Will you persist pursuing your own ends throughout life? And then what? Honestly. Will you continue to make your own rules and live by your own standard or play the forgetfulness game where you think, oh, I'll deal with this later down in life when I have another opportunity or when I get a sickness or when I'm on my deathbed? You don't know when that's coming, friend. Will you continue to, 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 to uh, uh, say that you'll give an account for every careless word or deed when it comes down to it at the end? Or if you don't believe that you will give an account, are you really okay with everybody in this world, getting away with every evil thing they've ever done. Are you really okay with that? Think of all the evil throughout history. You're okay with everybody just getting away with that? Will you remain adamant that you're going to attempt to write your own check when it comes down to the expiration date of your life? Or will you gaze into the beauty of Christ and the depths of his love for you and the glories of the gospel and the truth that you too can be forgiven today, eternally, as many of us here today have, all sins, past, present, and future. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I will give to the Lord thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Friends, let this be said of you and true of you today. I urge you. Please come talk to me. I'll be standing at the door in the back on your way out. 
talk to Pastor James, talk to someone sitting next to you after service. Don't just press it off to the side. Don't distract yourself thinking about something else and say, I'll deal with this at another time. Deal with it today because you may not get tomorrow. For the Christian here today, my, my prayer is that we might be able to truly say with David that even despite hardship or worry or anxiety or injustice, that we will give thanks to the Lord due to his righteousness, that we will trust him due to his righteousness, that we can trust him to judge the wicked and that we can trust him to save those who are, have the righteousness of Christ. Think of David, surrounded all side, uh, on all sides, misunderstood, wrongly accused, and feeling like he's on his own. I hope you're still in 1 Peter, because if you will, if you'll look with me, just back a few verses at chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. How is the Christian to respond in a situation similar to Psalm 7? When evil is surrounding us, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, like Cush, like the Romans to Jesus on the cross, like your coworkers or your rivals or people who hate you for being a Christian, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You're submitting yourself to not gossip back at them, to not avenge them, to not speak evil of them to everybody else is for the hope and sake of seeing them stand on the final day by seeing your good deeds that they might not be destroyed forever. Jump over to chapter four of First Peter, chapter, uh, chapter four, verses one through five. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what do they do? They malign you. Now get this. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And finally, jump to chapter 5, verse 6. One page later, speaking of lions seeking to tear us apart, what are we to do? Verse 6 Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Friends, there is a spiritual lion in all of your lives, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, who is trying to take you out. Don't be caught off guard. There is so much joy to be had in resting and trusting in God in the midst of hardship. David did it on the run. Christ did it on the cross. Surely we can do it in our own lives. Amen.
to leave you with some final thoughts. A theologian, William Plumer, once wrote, nothing has greater power or is more sure than the sustaining energy to everyone who relies on God alone. Or as John Calvin wrote, this is a genuine and undoubted proof of our faith. When being visited with adversity, we yet persevere in cherishing and exercising hope in God. Or finally, Charles Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are and for your righteousness, that you are deeply devoted to the restoration of all that is good. Lord, how we long for that day. God, how truly amazing it is that you are good in all your ways and we, because of that, can truly and joyfully trust you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the incredible reality that we can truly live now and for all eternity clothed in his righteousness rather than our own. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.